We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Good morning. What does it take to belong to or contribute to an authentic community? Today we welcome on our kickoff Sunday all people here, visitors, maybe first time checking out the church, maybe you've been here for ages, and we are so glad you're here and want to connect or reconnect with you. What does it mean to develop authentic community? Yeah, we want to get to know people. We want to know where you're from. We want to know what job you do, where you're studying. We want to know about your family. But at one level, if we keep it there, that level, it's hard to go farther. It's hard to develop more. And those kind of questions, perhaps, what's molded you? What has shaped you? What have been some of the highs and lows in your experience? How has God redeemed you? How has God maybe healed you? What are your questions? What are you, how has God shaped you through the relationships in your journey, in, in your wilderness? These kinds of questions may be a bit too touchy-feely for us, and yet at some level, unless we go there, unless we venture there, it's hard for us to develop authentic community. For some of us can look back on our past and our history and romanticize it or demonize it, and others can look at our present and rationalize it or even look at our future and fantasize about it. But the problem is it doesn't help our community because it's a fiction. It's not based on reality. And there's a deeper issue that the Protestant Reformation leaders signaled to us in the uh, Continental Reformation when they said, it is our hearts that control what we do. Our hearts, it's what our hearts love, it's what our wills choose, and what our minds justify. That's what controls us. The mind does not control the will. The mind is actually captive to the will, and what the will wants, and what the will wants in turn is captive to what the heart desires. And so that Protestant Reformation rallying cry of the church reformed its theology and its ecclesiology was matched by always reforming that harder and difficult work of the soul, that interior work. I know for myself, struggling with that interior work is a lifelong process. And I found myself struggling with my own outward self, if you like, of performance, of stifling maybe my anger, stuffing it, overcompensating in some areas, that British stiff upper lip. (laughs) And Thomas Merton describes those kinds of behaviors that are shaped by our culture and our society as our false self, not our true self. Often it's influenced by a surrounding community and uh, how we were raised maybe overly interested in impressing other people or controlling them or controlling knowledge, a false self that demonstrates and wants to control. 
All sin, Merton says, starts from the assumption that my false self, my outer self, that self that exists only in my egocentric desires, is the fundamental reality of my life, to which everything else in my universe must be ordered. And we clothe that false self with whatever it is on the performance on the outside, that desire and appetite for control or security or power. The problem is that God does not recognize my false self nor your false self. He cannot know it and he cannot therefore love it, but rather he looks for our true self, what is really authentically you and me. And our true self is like a mirror of the soul, reflecting that beauty and majesty and love of the one who created us and redeemed us. That special place that God has created in each one of us where the Holy Spirit dwells as a temple. And so our job at the beginning of this new fall season is to scrub and to clean, to make sure that mirror actually reflects the beauty and the gorgeousness, the delicateness, intricateness of our Heavenly Father, rather than the dirty, scrubby, outward-facing realities that many of us face. And so as we look at our psalm today, this magnificent Psalm 81, I want us to think about authentic community and what it means and what it meant to the Israelites and what it might mean for us today. Psalm 81 in context comes from Psalm 79 and Psalm 80 where the Israelites are lamenting collectively about their plight. In many ways it is their false self. And then Psalm 81 comes as a different story, the other side of the story, God's side of the story that reveals in many ways their true self. And what we see from Psalm 81 is that this God, this Creator God, loves His people. He yearns for His people. He desires for them to celebrate. He desires for them to listen. He desires for them to proclaim and to shout, but He also yearns for them to be quiet and to hear and to heed. He loves for them to celebrate in community, but he also wants them to hear the word of prophecy to them. So we're going to look at two sections in this psalm, Psalm 81, verses 1 to 7, of singing and shouting, and then verses 8 to 16, of listening and hearing. So let's walk together through this psalm as we consider what our role is in developing authentic community. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. It's amazing how diverse and how creative there are, so many different ways to praise God. This isn't a formula. This isn't a cookie-cutter recipe that somehow check the boxes. This is splitting the ears, literally. This is full-throated, wholehearted, celebratory, exuberant worship. God has created His people to worship Him, and this, what, this is what it means to be the people of God, to be a people who are centered on worshiping Him. For those of you who are classically inclined, you'll know the amazing quality of voice of sopranos like Maria Callas or Kiriti Kanawa, and those who are the Swifties amongst us, I can, do not consider myself one of those tribe. <laughs> But you know the beauty of Taylor's voice. You know something of that quality. And God has created the human voice both in the range from bass to soprano and within each range of alto, alto tenor, whatever it is, of the unique signature 
of ways that coming together with instruments can celebrate and praise God. Well, why should God's people exuberantly worship Him? I think there are a couple of reasons we can look at from our passage. First of all, because He is our strength, and He is the God of Jacob. He is our strength, in contrast to verse 9, of the strange and foreign gods who are impotent. He's also the God of Jacob. It's an interesting choice. Jacob, if you remember, was a slippery character. He stole his brother's birthright. He tricked his father-in-law. He wrestled all night with a man. He was a man with a limp. He was a broken man. And yet God calls himself the God of Jacob. In fact, the God of all Jacobs who are broken people. Indeed, God had blessed Jacob before his even he was born. He was blessed in Abraham. That Abrahamic blessing went down through the generations. And Jacob could say in his own wilderness experiences in Genesis 35, 3, that God answered Jacob in the day of his distress and was with him wherever he went, that Emmanuel principle. So they praise him because of who God is. Another reason is because what God has done. Verse 6 and 7, I relieved your shoulder from the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. He delivered, he revealed, he tested. I relieved your shoulder. Notice the detailed, sharp image of a shoulder and of hands, expressing the pain and the oppression of Egyptian slavery for 400 years, no less. And yet God reveals himself to them, saying in Exodus 2 that he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He saw the people and he knew. He saw them and he knew them. And he delivered them, a whole entire population, out of Egypt. Second, he also revealed himself Notice that little phrase, I answered you in the secret place of thunder. In other words, Sinai, where he revealed himself as an, an encounter with God, education through encounter as the Ten Commandments were revealed in the law. But more than that, God is yearning for his people, not only to deliver them, not only to educate them, but also we see at the end of verse 7, to test them, to expose them to his very probing examination and scrutiny, because he wants a relationship that is so profound and so interwoven, so mingled that it is truly harmonious between the people of God and Yahweh himself. He mentions here Meribah. It's a fascinating episode and worth us just spending a little time pausing over it. So I'm going to read a little bit from this episode in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. If you have a scripture in front of you, you may wish to turn to it because it signals what, meaning, what it means to be the, the, the people of God. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandments of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the, the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock who thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massar and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? One expert on this passage observes that typically when preachers look at this passage, they talk about a grumpy people, a grumbling, grumpy, quarreling people. And certainly that is part of this story, but there's more. As a community, Israel had romanticized her past. Remember those leeks and lemons, melons? But forget about, forget about that genocide and that dictator. They had rationalized their present. Perhaps the Red Sea event was just a freak of nature. And is God really capable of helping us in this desert? They quarreled. The ESV has quarreled in verse 2. It doesn't really communicate all that is going on here. It's a courtroom scene in the desert. It's legal language. You see, Moses had already cried out to the Lord because the people in verse 4 were ready to stone him. And stoning was a judicial execution in ancient Israel. It wasn't simply mob violence. It's a judicial execution that Israel is putting God on trial. Is the Lord among us or not? They say in verse 7. The community doubts God's promises and God's faithfulness. So in such a context, how will God respond to his people? In verse 5 of chapter 17 there, it's with justice. He says, pass on to Moses before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you, and there on the rock, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink of it. Notice Moses is separated from the community. He goes before them. He takes his staff, that instrument of judgment, upon the Nile, upon all the gods of Egypt, that the true God, the one and only God, creator of heaven and earth, had judged the false gods of Egypt, and the Nile turned to blood. So if Moses was to take his staff and strike the people, they would be terrified. Well, notice, too, how God identifies himself with the rock. Rock, for us, can be a little misleading. It could be a term that refers not simply to a pebble or even a boulder, but to a massive geological mountain range. Yet striking the rock, in effect, is the punishment due to the community, the justice of God meted out on the community. And yet the surprise is that this punishment, this judgment, is meted out on God himself, that he receives the punishment that he does not deserve. And the people of God, they receive the blessing that they do not deserve. They receive the water from the rock. So Israel gets the blessing she does not deserve, and God gets the punishment that he does not deserve. There are so many reasons to exuberantly praise this God. And in our own lives, in our own experience collectively or individually, in our own journeys and wilderness 
I'm sure we can find many examples where God has defended, where God has delivered, where God has tested, where God is the God of Jacob, where God is the God of our strength. He is a God to be praised and worshipped. Notice at the end of verse 7, that little word, selah, or selah, not sure how to say it. It really marks a pause or a crescendo in the music or the liturgy to hold up your hands or to repeat something, and it's worth pausing there just to contemplate this majestic, loving God. But then in verse 8, we go on. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. It's about the ears, listening. I'd like to invite you now to put your hands on your ears. Would you put your hands on your ears? Just feel around your ears how big it is, small it is. That's it. I'm not going to ask you to penetrate your ears at this point, but simply just to be aware of your ears. We all have ears, or most of us have ears. An amazing thing ears are, and I know we have many physicians in the congregation and who know a lot more about ears than, than I certainly do, but there's the outer ear, the different shapes. We all have different shapes of our ears and sizes, and there's the middle ear that amplifies 22 times and passes sound into the third ear, the inner ear, where the real hearing occurs. It's the main element is a snail-shaped tube named the cochlea. It contains thousands of microscopic hair-like cells each of which is tuned to one particular vibration. And as one expert notes, the vibrations are converted into electric impulses, which convey sound to the brain for decoding along with 30,000 circuits of the auditory nerve. Our ears are created and designed by God. Not only that we hear each other, but what we might hear our maker. And therefore, it is not surprising that in the wisdom literature of which the Psalms are a part, the ears and hearing and listening are continually hammered upon. Proverbs 1, verse 5, let the wise hear and increase in learning. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. It sort of sounds obvious, but it's not. It sounds intuitive, but it's not. Surely the wise are those who already know. Surely the wise are those who already have understanding. Surely the wise have already got their act together. They've got it all. And yet, the Proverbs say, let the wise hear, continue to hear. With the result, they increase in their learning. It's counterintuitive. That is the way, the fear of God, the way to true knowledge, to keep on hearing. As one pastor said, bad listeners make, do not make good disciples. So Psalm 81, then, as we continue in this section, this next section is really one of admonition to hear and to listen, to be quiet, to listen. And in verses 9 and 10, we hear this repetition of the Ten Commandments. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And as we read those verses and as the psalmist repeats them, we might think, well, what comes after that? Perhaps we should be reading about Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Or perhaps we should expect to demand, be grateful, therefore, Israel. Obey me. Or perhaps we expect a judgment. You've disobeyed my law. 
you should be punished. We might expect at this point the justice of God, the legislation of God, but that's not what we find. End of verse 10, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. We don't find God's justice, but God's bounty, God's abundance, God's grace. He's saying to Israel, be like a little birdie in the, in the wilderness, in the, in, the, in the desert. Open your mouth wide. I'm going to fill it. But then he says in verse 11, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. The history of God's people is a tragic one. It's littered with examples of not listening, not even wanting to hear. This could be translating, translated, they don't want anything to do with God. Remember, upon entering the Promised Land, Joshua, he entered so well, so full of faith, so full of courage. You remember in Joshua 6, the Battle of Jericho, and yet so quickly, so soon afterwards, he falls flat on his face, the disaster of Ai, the presumption, the pride that he knew what he was doing. He didn't need to listen to anyone else apart from his own men. And he failed again in Joshua chapter 9 with the Gibeonites. So some of the men took their provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord, and Joshua made peace with them. And then we see it repeated in the history of, of the leaders in, in Israel, of Saul, for example, when the prophet comes to him in 1 Samuel 15 and says to Saul, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen, to listen than the, than the fat of rams, for rebellion is the sin of divination. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Tragedy upon tragedy occurs when God's people fail to listen, fail to hear God. And so God responds by giving them over to their own stubborn hearts and following their own counsels. They must face the consequences of relying on themselves or persisting in their own will or following the gods of the nations or the gods of their times or the idols. As Jeremiah said, the heart, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it, desperately corrupt. Who can fix it? Who can change it, let alone understand the human heart? That was certainly the case in the period of the judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was the judgment the apostle Paul had in Romans 1, where he talked about, though they knew God, they did not honor him of God or give thanks to him. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. It's a similar pattern repeated again and again and again in the history of God's people. Psalm 106 in the King James Version says, God gave them their request but sent leanness to their souls. Well, verse 13 comes in many ways as a complete surprise. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I find it almost unintelligible that after Israel had treated Yahweh so terribly, had neglected him so much, and rebelled against him so deeply, they'd been so deaf to him, so impervious to his movements towards them, that he expresses his affection and his love for them. 
They prefer, perhaps we might call, their false self to their true self. When lacking in rain, they turn to Baal in 1 Kings 18. When lacking strength, she sought a king in 1 Samuel 8. Surely the hammer of God should fall, and yet that's not what happens. It's not what happens. We see in verse 14 to 16 what God does. He turns out to be their victor, their warrior, their protector. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. And not only in that generation, but in future generations. And then in verse 16, but he would feed you, or feed him with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. Remarkably, God says he will be their provider. He will satisfy them. They will taste and see that the Lord is good. Not simply ordinary wheat, which was the staple in Israel, but the finest of wheat, literally the fat of the kidneys of wheat. This is the very best of the best that God will give his people. And honey from the rock, honey from the rock. We've already talked about this rock image in the Old Testament. Rocks are shattered in the very presence of God in Nahum 1.6 as God's sovereign and transcendent power is revealed in judgment to the nations. This God is a mighty God, an immense God, a supreme God who knows the end from the beginning. He is the rock. So when Paul in the New Testament picks up on this image in 1 Corinthians 10, he connects the rock of Horeb, the rock of the Old Testament, to Christ himself. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate of the same spiritual food and drank of the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So, this is an example of what is called typology, taking an event or an experience or an institution from the Old Testament and then seeing it through the lens of redemptive history. It prevents that kind of use and reflection on Scripture becoming moralistic or allegorical in a sense. It's taking an appropriate way of looking at something in light of all of redemptive history. And you see what the, that he's saying. Christ in his pre-incarnate form nurtured and nourished the people of God. Christ took the judgment, the striking, the hitting of the rock that should have gone to the people of God, that he took what they deserved, and they took, they received what he deserved. They deserved judgment from God, but the judgment fell. That striking came upon Christ himself. And that new life, that bubbling up, that honey, that love, as one poet said, love is that liquor sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. That they could experience the honey and the wine that is the result and the fruit of this amazing striking of Christ himself. Well, Paul uses this example because he does not want the Corinthian Christians there in Greece to be uninformed. They were self-confident, they were sure of themselves, they had their act together, and they wanted to see how far they could test God in 1 Corinthians 10.9. And yet Paul warns them, he says, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. They were in fact vulnerable to similar failures as Israel had. Therefore, Paul says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. So we come to the end of our psalm, verses 15 and 16. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. And yet, it's a cliffhanger. It's unresolved. On the one hand, we have this picture, this portrait of the authentic worshiping community, suckled by the bounty of a great God who covenanted with the likes of Jacob, who was no spectator to their pain and trauma in Egypt, nor their pain in the wilderness, nor to the pain and trauma in Greece, nor may we add to our pain and trauma perhaps here even in Boston today. But he was active and engaged in a community that both celebrated and listened, a community that was both noisy and silent, a community that became self-aware of its own false self and became trying to live into its true self, a broken people and yet a loved people, a people called to mission that Abraham had been given to all the nations to fulfill that mission as they moved out into the world. And yet, on the other hand, at the end of our psalm, we don't know. We don't know how the people of God will respond. There's no resolution. Will they continue singing and yet remain deaf? Will this community romanticize her past, rationalize her present, and fantasize her future? Will this community persist in clinging to a false self and yet incapable of hearing the, the Word of God in the inner ear? of that wooing, yearning heart of a loving Creator and Redeemer who yearns for His people? Will they persist in their own counsels? Will they go on their own way stubbornly? I suppose it's a choice each one of us needs to make in the presence of a holy God, of how we as individuals and then how we as individuals contribute to an authentic community. May God have mercy on us all. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are honey from the rock. We thank you that you were struck for us. We thank you for the, the wine and the love that flows from your side. We thank you for the Spirit who renews us in the image of Christ. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, Lord, that we may become an authentic community. For your great name's sake, amen.